Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. We're the only podcast that's separating the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's top headlines. Slovakia's prime minister says the EU and NATO are considering deploying troops in Ukraine. The European Parliament passes a nature restoration bill. Italy, Sardinia elects a left-wing president. Biden says he's hopeful for a Gaza ceasefire soon. Biden urges Congress to avoid a looming partial shutdown. An FAA panel finds Boeing's safety culture to be, quote, inadequate and confusing. Tennessee's House passes a bill banning expelled representatives from reappointment. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is cleared of wrongdoing over his hospitalization. Japan's new births fell to a record low in 2023. And New Zealand reverses course on its tobacco ban. Our top story, the Slovakian prime minister says the EU and NATO are mulling troop deployments in Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Institute for the Study of War, the Kiev Independent, BBC News and Politico. Several EU and NATO member states are weighing the possibility of troop deployments in Ukraine, according to Slovak Prime Minister Robert Fico. Speaking before a meeting on Monday in the French capital, Fico said a restricted document, which laid out the option, sends shivers down your spine. He added that this was confirmation that the Ukraine strategy of the West has completely failed. Addressing the comments later in the day, French President Emmanuel Macron said, There was no consensus today to send troops on the ground in a manner that's official. But on the dynamic, nothing should be excluded. We will do everything so that Russia cannot win this war. Amid the stalling of U.S. military aid to Ukraine, Macron also announced that a coalition of European leaders had agreed to provide Ukraine with medium- and long-range missiles, though no additional details were provided. The announcement comes as Ukraine continues to suffer on the battlefield due to shortages of ammunition and other key equipment. On Monday, a military spokesman for Ukraine confirmed that troops withdrew from the village of Lestokine, which lies just west of the Donetsk city of Evdivka. Russian troops captured Evdivka on February 17th. The Institute for the Study of War, a U.S. military think tank that tracks troop positions in the conflict, confirmed the fall of the Stokine. It added that Russian military bloggers also claimed the capture of Severna and Tonenke, west of Avdivka, but ISW said these have not been independently confirmed. ISW further reported that Russia made confirmed gains west of Bakhmut in Donetsk, as well as near Kremina in western Luhansk. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on our first story today and for the update on the situation in Ukraine. We're going to start our first round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by BBC News. Russia must not be allowed to prevail in Ukraine, as it would have a hugely detrimental impact on European security. As such, EU countries are working hard to provide Ukraine with the weapons it needs and is considering all options to make sure that it can win this conflict. President Putin must not be allowed to advance his expansionist aims. And TASS brings us the pro-Russia narrative. Aside from the avoidable loss of Ukrainian territory and men throughout this conflict, Ukraine's counteroffensive has failed and Kyiv is now losing the war. More money for arms will simply bring about more death and destruction. Ukraine would never have fought this war against Russia without U.S. and EU weapons. Now that these weapons are running dry, 
Ukraine must accept the reality that Russia will never cease its defense of the Donbass or Crimea. And our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community are going to start things off with a nerd narrative on our first story. They think that there's a 32% chance that there will be a large-scale armed conflict in Russia before 2030. The European Parliament passes a nature restoration bill. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Guardian, DW.com, The Irish Times, and Reuters. The European Parliament on Tuesday voted 329 to 275 to pass a nature restoration law. If approved by the EU Council, it could set a target for the EU to restore at least 20% of its land and water by the end of the decade. The law would require member states to restore 30% of specific habitats, including forests, grasslands, wetlands, rivers, lakes, and coral beds, by 2030, 60% by 2040, and 90% by 2050. The overall goal of the legislation is to restore the vast majority of Europe's natural habitats, 81% of which are currently classified as being in poor health. Another ecosystem mentioned in the bill is peatland, which absorb carbon dioxide. Proponents of the law were forced to scrap any provisions due to opposition from center-right lawmakers. The removed provisions included ones to increase the amount of trees, ponds, and other biodiversity features on farmland. The law is part of the EU's broader Green Deal proposal though recent farmer protests have led lawmakers to gut many of the original environmental policies. Protests continued Monday in front of the Parliament headquarters in Brussels, with some driving tractors into barricades. All right, thanks, Adam. We have some diametrically opposed political narratives on this story. Let's start with the left narrative spin from DW. These farmers have valid concerns, which is why leaders across the continent have been offering more concessions. However, these genuine economic concerns have been hijacked by far-right politicians who don't want to accept that climate change will have consequences and farming must transition into a modernized, sustainable industry. That's going to be countered by EuropeanConservative.com with the right narrative. Left-leaning pro-EU media personalities call farmers so-called far-right because they want to associate everyone they disagree with with extremist labels to keep dissent at bay. But European farmers and other citizens are against these environmental laws because they know the farming industry and their livelihoods will be destroyed. And we have nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This time they say there's a 20% chance there will be a five-year period with an average global temperature of greater than 3.6 degrees Celsius warmer than the 1861 to 1880 baseline before the year 2100. I would imagine farmers would be, you know, totally supportive of a restoring to the uh, natural habitat type thing. Seems like a farmer kind of thing, you know? Well, I mean, in many ways, a industrialized farm is a desert of its own kind. It's a total monoculture. It's the opposite of nature. In order to have a field grow uh, soybeans, you got to kill everything else. That was on that field. Plants, except floral, for soybeans, fauna, only soybeans. So yeah, um, so yeah, that's uh, I guess that's the opposite of nature. News from Italy as Sardinia elects their first female leader and defeats Maloney's party. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Guardian, Reuters, and Barons. 
Alessandra Tata of the left-wing five-star movement, or M5S party, has won the Sardinian presidential election, defeating Paolo Truzu of Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney's right-wing Brothers of Italy party. Truzu, who was handpicked by Maloney to run on her party's ticket, won 45% of the vote, while Tata narrowly beat him with 45.4%. Tata, who received the backing of the center-left Democratic Party, will now become the island's first-ever female president. She previously served as a minister under former prime ministers Giuseppe Conti and Mario Draghi. This is the first electoral defeat for Maloney's coalition, which includes Matteo Salvini's League Party and Forza Italia. Salvini had wanted the incumbent president, Christian Salinas, to run for office, but Maloney chose Truzo amid corruption allegations against Salinas. Tota's win, the first time a center-left coalition has flipped a region since 2015, comes ahead of Italy's four other regional elections in June to elect members of the European Parliament. The most recent national polls from Utrend place Brothers of Italy at 28%, League at 8.3%, and Forza Italia at 7.6%. On the center-left side, PD and M5S are polling at around 20 and 16%, respectively. Thank you, Scott. The left narrative spin for this story is provided by Agenzia Nova. Despite pre-election polls giving the brothers of Italy an advantage, Tata has proven that Sardinia is shifting in a more liberal direction, even in the capital Cagliari, where Truzo was mayor. The PD-M5S coalition was extremely popular. Tata will not only become the first female leader of the island, but also have a historic liberal majority in the regional council. And the right narrative spin from the Telegraph. While liberals will tout this as a grand come-from-behind victory, the truth is that this was only a local race, a very close one for that matter. The Brothers of Italy and its coalition partners remain far ahead of the Democratic Party and M5S at the national level. Maloney picked the wrong candidate this time around, but the Italian people as a whole are still on her side. And the nerds think that there's a 1% chance that any of Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands, and or Germany will leave the EU before 2027. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. I wonder if there's any relation to Christopher Maloney. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking that the whole time. I, I, I watch uh, <laughs> Law and Order. Stabler did spend a few years in Italy while he was gone. That, that's the, there that's you the go. fiction. That's what it was. So, yeah. Oh, he, he, now that he's back, that, that that's the backstory? Is that that's he was where he was. He was working uh, mafia stuff in Italy. Yeah. News out of Gaza, where President Biden is hopeful for a ceasefire, but regional officials are skeptical. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Reuters, ABC News, The Times of Israel, Axios, and Guardian. U.S. President Joe Biden said on Monday that he's hopeful that a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas will be agreed upon within a week, saying that Israel would pause its looming operation into Rafah, in which over 1.2 million Palestinians are taking refuge on the Egyptian border, before Ramadan. In contrast to Biden's comments, regional officials expressed apprehension on Tuesday, with a Qatari official saying that none of the remaining issues have been solved. Hamas, which is weighing a proposal hammered out in Paris last week, said many so-called big gaps remain. In a Tuesday statement, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that he intended to, quote, curb pressure, quote, to end the war before its time 
and build support for Israel. An Israeli official said earlier on Tuesday that Netanyahu was, quote, surprised by Biden's comments. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas accepted the resignation of his prime minister, Mohammed Shitaye, on Tuesday, asking him to stay on as a caretaker until a replacement is appointed. The U.S. has called for a reformed Palestinian authority, or a PA, to govern Gaza after the war. On Tuesday, the U.S. urged Netanyahu to take steps to bolster the Palestinian economy and address the PA's financial crisis in the West Bank. The U.S. has warned that if the PA collapsed, the West Bank would descend into disorder and violence, heightening the regional conflict. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed nearly 30,000 people, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at 12,000 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thanks, Adam. We have a pro-establishment narrative spin from CBS. Israel must be able to defend itself from terrorist attacks from Gaza or elsewhere, and the U.S. is committed to preventing malicious actors from threatening Israel's legitimate concerns. However, Netanyahu is going too far, and he must be willing to follow through on his promises to compromise on a needed truce. The Biden administration is losing its patience with Netanyahu's intransigence. That's going to be countered with the pro-Israeli narrative provided by Jerusalem Post. Israel will always be thankful for the U.S.'s steadfast support, but President Joe Biden needs to take a step back from his criticisms of Israel's prime minister. Netanyahu is a complicated figure, and Biden has a re-election campaign to worry about, which has created understandable tension between the two. However, Biden must understand that he should be pressuring Hamas's terrorists, who have not made a single positive step in finding a compromise. Instead of Israel, Israel will pursue its goals, which are incredibly popular with its citizens, regardless of whether it annoys Washington. And we have a pro-Palestine narrative from the nation. As Israel's slaughter of Palestinians in Gaza continues unabated, the Biden administration, increasingly anxious over the upcoming election, has resorted to bad-faith tactics to deny its support for Israel's brutal campaign. Regardless of how the administration tries to spin it, Biden has armed Israel, given it diplomatic cover, and refused to call for a permanent ceasefire, all of which incentivizes continued bloodshed. Indeed, Israel's war on Gaza would be unsustainable without U.S. support, and Biden should enact concrete policy to stop the violence. The nerds are going to stop this spin with a narrative. They think that there's a 2% chance that Hamas will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st of 2025. According to the Metaculous Prediction community, Biden urges Congress to avoid a looming partial shutdown. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, Newsmax, NBC News, Fox News, Politico, and The Wall Street Journal. U.S. President Joe Biden called on Congress to find a bipartisan solution to avert a partial government shutdown later this week as he hosted the top four congressional leaders at the White House on Tuesday. After the meeting, House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, expressed optimism about reaching an agreement to fund agriculture and transportation agencies among others, ahead of the Friday deadline. New York's Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, meanwhile, claimed that Johnson, who publicly opposed additional short-term stopgap bills last month, 
unequivocally committed to averting the shutdown. Schumer also told reporters that everyone in the room, particularly Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, urged Johnson not to further delay Ukraine aid. In a one-on-one meeting with Biden after the others left, the Speaker said the House would quickly address Ukraine. This meeting comes as ongoing negotiations to avoid a partial shutdown failed to produce a compromise over the weekend, with Schumer and Johnson blaming each other for the holdup. Following the record-long shutdown that began in December 2018, the federal government has successfully avoided shutdowns despite several near misses, including one at the 11th hour on September 30th and two others since then. Thank you for the facts, Scott. The New York Times is going to start the spins with a Democratic narrative. As the majority House Republican conference remains fractured, with far-right MAGA conservatives pushing for cutting federal funding and adding unacceptable partisan policy conditions to spending bills, America is yet again at the brink of an unacceptable shutdown. Similar to the three previous close calls in a year, Democrats will have to avoid it. And a Republican narrative from the Washington Times. This is the perfect time to add an automatic sequestration mechanism to cut spending in the case of future impasses. If Speaker Johnson can keep out of the way members of his own caucus who believe that threatening government shutdowns in a bipartisan brinkmanship theater is good politics, then House Republicans will be able to achieve their biggest and easiest win in years. The Metaculous Prediction community are going to share their opinion. They think that there's a 33% chance that there will be a U.S. government shutdown before January 1st of 2025. A recent FAA report faults Boeing's safety culture. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Yahoo Finance, Aviation International News, Forbes, New York Times, The Seattle Times, and The Hill. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, in a report published Monday, faulted Boeing's safety management culture for recent incidents involving its 737 MAX planes. The report highlights a so-called discontent between the management and employees. The U.S. Aviation Watchdog's 50-page report was based on a panel's finding that included a lack of skillful awareness among a majority of employees on various reporting systems. The panel's 27 findings included Boeing's failure to make safety reporting non-punitive. The FAA added that the firm doesn't take enough pilot input from its programs including 53 recommendations. FAA's criticisms were issued despite reported improvements Boeing has made since the two crashes involving the 737 MAX 8 jet in 2018 and 2019 that killed 346 people. The expert panel found that the implementation of Boeing's improvements had been, quote, inadequate and confusing. The report comes weeks after a fuselage piece blew off a 737 MAX 9 on January 5th in Oregon. The FAA grounded around 171 Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft after the January incident. Some of the planes are back flying again, but there's uncertainty surrounding Boeing's safety guarantees. Thanks, Adam. We have Narrative A from The Hill. Safety is the lifeblood of any aviation company, so criticism of Boeing is warranted. But what it really needs right now is a solid path to improvement rather than being decimated. Patience and perseverance from regulators, the government, and the public are key because it's important to keep a U.S.-based company like Boeing going. The spin's going to continue with a narrative B provided by Washington Post. 
After the 2018 and 2019 tragedies on its planes, Boeing seems to have prioritized profitability over safety. Comments by CEO Dave Calhoun exposed a rot in the heart of the company, and it's facing a long road to regaining the trust of the government and the public. It can start by being more transparent when it has issues. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that the next commercial supersonic flight will take off in September 2030. I thought Boeing was being totally transparent, dudes, you know, showing people the inside of their planes. That's true. Yeah, you you want transparency. What more do you want here? Jeez. A Tennessee House bill bans expelled reps from reappointment. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Tennessee Lookout, the Tennessean, Associated Press, and 91.3 FM NPR WKMS. The Republican-majority Tennessee House of Representatives on Monday passed a bill sponsored by GOP Representative Johnny Garrett to prevent local governments from reappointing state lawmakers who had previously been expelled for bad behavior. The bill previously passed the House State Government Committee by a vote of 14 to 5, nearly a year after Garrett led the expulsion of Democratic representatives Justin Pearson and Justin Jones for violating House decorum rules. The vote in favor occurred even after the House Legal Counsel, Matt Monday, advised members that the bill may be unconstitutional, including because lawmakers are currently permitted to succeed themselves. But Monday said it may be up to a court to make a final determination. Jones and Pearson, who are black, were expelled for their role in gun control protests on the House floor. Democratic Representative Gloria Johnson, who is white, also took part but escaped expulsion by one vote. Pearson and Jones were reappointed to their seats by their respective city councils. This bill, HB 2716, would prevent that scenario in the future. Scott, thank you for laying out the facts on that story. We're going to start these spins with a Republican narrative provided by the Tennessee Conservatives. This bill is constitutional. It's preposterous to think that the founders of the state of Tennessee intended members who were expelled for bad behavior to be eligible to be reappointed to their seat. Opponents are free to challenge this bill in the courts, but they shouldn't be able to win. And we have a Democratic narrative from Bali Inside. This partisan bill is a classic case of GOP government overreach. Republicans are clearly passing this as retaliation against lawmakers who were lawfully return to their positions after a racially charged vote to expel them and violate their freedom of speech rights. This won't withstand a court challenge. And the Metaculous Prediction community have another opinion. They think that there's a 20% chance that any state will refuse to certify its election results during the 2024 U.S. presidential election. News out of the Pentagon where Lloyd Austin is blameless for not disclosing his hospitalization. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, CBS, CNN, Voice of America, and ABC News. The U.S. Pentagon on Monday released a review that concluded Secretary of State Lloyd Austin and his staff were not at fault for failing to notify the White House, Congress, or top Pentagon staff about his January hospitalization, saying that they didn't act with ill intent. The three-page report summarizing the Pentagon's internal review of the situation blamed the communication failure on the unprecedented situation and a desire to protect Austin's privacy. Directed by Austin's chief of staff, Kelly Magsman, the report says Austin's staff was limited during his hospitalization because of privacy laws, hesitance to share sensitive information, 
and the fluid nature of Austin's stay in the critical care unit. The unclassified portion of the summary largely absolved all parties of wrongdoing, saying there wasn't a plan for such an unprecedented circumstance. While Austin acknowledged he should have handled the situation differently, he denied that his office has a culture of secrecy. On December 22nd, Austin underwent a surgical procedure for prostate cancer and then dealt with a urinary tract infection and intestinal complications. He was hospitalized January 1st, but the White House didn't know about his health situation until January 4th. After his release, Austin told reporters he wanted to keep his quote-unquote gut-punch cancer diagnosis private. He's scheduled to testify before the House Armed Services Committee on Thursday. Fox News brings us a Republican narrative spin. It's no surprise a Pentagon report found there was no one to blame at the Pentagon. But it's appalling that the report details such ineptitude by Democrats in the Biden administration, particularly when it says Austin and his staff didn't pass on information that could quickly change because it was an unprecedented situation. The unprecedented nature of the incident required complete transparency to keep the U.S. safe. Republican narratives are typically followed up with Democratic narratives. I have one here provided by MSNBC. Republicans continuing to politicize Austin's health problems and communication mistakes are smearing an honorable man who's serving the U.S. admirably. Austin has apologized to the president, his co-workers, and the American people transparency that GOP culture could benefit from. And it's time to look toward the future, not stay mired in the past. And a nerd narrative follows from Metaculus. There's a 46% chance that Joe Biden will be reelected president of the United States in 2024. New births in Japan fell to a record low in 2023. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Kyoto News, BBC News, Reuters, The Independent, Japan Today, and The Japan Times. Preliminary data released Tuesday by Japan's government shows 2023 was the eighth consecutive year of declining annual births, reaching a record low of approximately 759,000. Deaths in 2023 also reached a record of approximately 1.6 million. The yearly birth total is a 5.1% decrease from 2022. Marriages have also declined by 5.9% from the year prior to approximately 489,000, a 90-year low. Speaking to reporters, Chief Cabinet Secretary Yoshimasa Hayashi said Japan's birth rate was at a critical situation, with the last chance to reverse the trend being 2030. According to the National Institute of Population and Social Security Research, Japan's population is predicted to decline by approximately 30%, to 87 million by 2070. Previously, the Institute had estimated annual births in Japan wouldn't decline to 760,000 until 2035. National data in September 2023 showed 1 in 10 of Japan's population being over the age of 80 for the first time, with approximately 29% age 65 or older. Thank you, Scott. The Diplomat is going to spin this story with a narrative A. The government is planning radical countermeasures to boost Japan's birth rate, but it may be too late. Unfortunately, the damage may be irreversible, and Prime Minister Kashida Fumio may have a hard time selling new policies to the public because of his lack of popularity. Japan is in demographic trouble. The Tokyo Review brings us narrative B. 
Japan's demographic crisis is not an isolated event, as China, North Korea, South Korea, Russia, Taiwan, and the U.S. are among the nations about to face the same reality. In this case, Japan may have a leg up because it has had time to devise its plan for dealing with a population decrease since the 70s. Well, the nerds are staying consistent, Scott. They've got an opinion with every story. They think here that there's a 50% chance that Japan will experience a record low year of 576,000 births between now and 2100. You ever been to Japan? I have several times. Very short uh, people in Japan. Really? Yeah. (laughs) First session. Okay. I, I, I... It's several, I, I crossed the very famous crosswalk that's huge in uh, Shibuya, Shibuya Crossing, okay. and uh, several times in the rain. And uh, many times I was very feared that uh, umbrellas were going to slice my neck. Oh, yeah. Right, right, right. The height yep. of the umbrella is just like r- the right point, at your jugular. Point. I had to really be careful. It's a dangerous city. Very friendly, though. Our final story comes out of New Zealand, where they're reversing course on a tobacco ban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the U.S. News and World Report, The Independent, The Daily Star, Sky News, and New Zealand Herald. New Zealand's government reversed course on its law prohibiting tobacco sales to future generations on Tuesday. The law had been the first of its kind worldwide. The ban, agreed upon by the previous Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's administration and scheduled to take effect in July, would have barred the sale of tobacco to anyone born after January 1st, 2009. But it's now been revoked as part of Prime Minister Christopher Luxon's 100-day plan. The Associate Health Minister Casey Costello emphasized the coalition government's commitment to lowering smoking rates through an alternative regulatory approach. Rather than a ban, this approach would emphasize deterring the habitual use of tobacco and harm reduction. The previous legislation was planned to decrease the number of nicotine retailers by approximately 90%, as well as lowering nicotine concentration within remaining tobacco products. Clinical trials and modeling research have suggested that the ban would have raised smokers' quit rates while creating obstacles for young people who want to start smoking. Regulations on vaping will be part of a new package of initiatives the coalition government will unveil. New Zealand's Ministry of Health has advised Costello that reducing the smoking population to 5%, targeted for 2025 under Labor's plan, will now take until at least 2061 and cost the economy a net 11 billion New Zealand dollars, approximately 4.3 billion U.S. dollars in healthcare spending and decreased productivity. All right, thanks for that update, uh, Adam. We have a narrative A from the Reason Foundation. It's good news that New Zealand's government has repealed its intended ban, as it's likely that the ban would have disproportionately affected the country's indigenous population. A ban would also provide a major incentive for smugglers to import cigarettes. A better way is to increase efforts to educate cigarette smokers, but the possible health benefits of switching to safer alternatives as well as provide more access to smoking cessation services for the Maori minority. The spin's going to continue with a narrative B provided by BBC News. The evidence is clear. Smoking is a massive driver of death in New Zealand and the Western world. The former government of Jacinda Ardern acknowledged this in her proposed legislation to protect future generations. The new coalition administration has repealed the prohibition 
and will announce other steps to reduce smoking that won't be as effective. It will be hard to come up with something as effective as a ban. And we have a final nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that a country will completely ban civilian tobacco consumption and smoking by September 2034. You got to imagine there had to have been a black market that was going to be set up for smoking. And I would think the reason that they, they figure they're losing money when they quit smoking is they're probably losing all the taxes that they had on tobacco. Right. That makes sense. Uh, I mean, haven't we already tried prohibition, at least in the United States, and it didn't didn't work for a number of reasons? We've also got a war on drugs, and uh, yeah, that war has been going on a, almost longer than the war in the Middle East. <laughs> Equally as successful. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more on Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.